As an engineer, we learn about principles in engineering school that are practically applicable to design of infrastructure, but metaphorically applicable to life. And one of those is the law of unintended consequences. I remember learning this as an engineering principle in the context of the zeal in the 70s and early 80s of the American Corps of Engineers for shore hardening. What that means is as we started to notice our beautiful and expensive shorelines getting encroached upon and the property starting to hang over into the sea, not only the beauty and appeal of the property, but its viability as well being threatened, we found that what we would do is create these jetties, dikes, and seawalls that said, you know what, this is as far as the, the, the shoreline is allowed to erode and no farther. And it worked for a while, but what we found is that 10 years later, the beach down the way got it three times as bad. It just propagated the erosion and deepened and worsened it down the shore. And so we compounded the problem we were trying to fix. That, in a nutshell, is the law of unintended consequences. I found over the last 15, 20 years, as the church has talked in modern context more and more about worship experiences and less about services, there has been a similar law of unintended consequences. As you notice, we've not adopted that language, and my point isn't to sharpshoot language, but to make a broader point. Um, we've resisted calling our worship services worship experiences. That's the common parlance in, the, in the, the modern church right now. And I have no judgment for people who are serving Jesus. If they're for him, we're for them. But as for this house, what we recognize is an experience is about me. A service is about him. Right? While I want it not to be a bad experience for us, I want it primarily be to be a great experience for him. But worship experiences speak to representatives of a consumer culture who go through their day amidst an unbroken string of blank experiences. The world caters to us as consumers and vies or pitches to us one experience after the next and tries to gain our allegiance. And so in a, in a manner of speaking on a practical level, it makes sense that the church would do that too, trying to keep people's engagement. Ah, but there is a law of unintended consequences. Worship experiences take God from the center and reduce him to a, a thing, a force to be leveraged to maximize our experience. And God, as you might imagine, is not fond of being treated that way. Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Jesus Way, identifies how that unintended consequence plays out down the road. When you have a God, lowercase g, that is a thing, a God you can use, an object, what happens is over time, neighbors also become things, something to use objects. With an impersonal God, you end up with an impersonal neighbor. When we take God out of the center and make the experience of us the center, then even as God is a thing to enhance our experience, our neighbor is a sort of um, extra in the movie of us. Right? We live out our lives among people who are made in God's image, people for whom Jesus died, 
And it becomes easy for us, all of us, living in a consumer culture, to see the people around us as pawns or randos or extras in the film about us instead of what they are, which is a thousand images of God. That's our title for this morning. Mark chapter 2 is our text as we look at Jesus' way. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head and lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. This passage goes on to describe Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders of his day who objected to his forgiving sins just like that, both it being so easy and free and his being the one to administer it, but also to object to the whole of Jesus' way. He, of course, says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He heals the man and they're all astonished. This account is in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Only a handful of stories are that. And I think it highlights something particular about grace and forgiveness Undoubtedly the main point, but also something subtle about Jesus's way. While the freedom that we have in Christ and the free forgiveness that we receive in grace through him is undoubtedly at the center of the meaning of this story, there are still these guys. Each gospel account mentions them. In verse 3, four men arrived, nameless, faceless men, carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They saw him, that man, because they chose to. They allowed themselves to be moved toward the heart of God. Who these men are, we never find out. What they did, how they came to be in this extraordinary scene. But this we can infer, and Jesus very often leaves us to piece together the backstory. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. To dial into the Holy Spirit and have Him reveal to us what is between the lines. It's an obvious conclusion that this man a child of God made in his image was in clear perpetual need. Four people noticed. They must have. First John says in chapter three, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed. And in truth. And that's what happened here. There was an intentional alignment of action and truth in seeing this man that led up to this moment, somewhere in the backstory. Because this is the guy it's easiest not to notice. 
And in our context, there are plenty of paralyzed men on mats, plenty whom we drive through the intersection and find it convenient not to notice at all, and plenty more who are hidden even more convincingly in plain sight. The 96% of the people in Denver who don't know Jesus go to any church of any sort on any given Sunday, who are far from God, created to be children of God, for whom Jesus died, whom we live around, work around, work out around, and do everything else we do in the company of and can go through life simply not noticing, like extras in a movie about us. Jesus, he embodied God's love. Scripture said he did all things well. And among that, he always noticed the one in need, didn't he? Living with Jesus is embracing his way that flies in the face of, indeed, that runs 180 degrees opposite the way of this world allowing his spirit to form us, to enlarge our sight and shape in our priorities. That verse says four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. This is a detail in the story that you can cruise right past, but for how unlikely this starts to become. This social interaction was unlikely to extraordinary in a culture that was defined by racism, the Jews and the Gentiles and the Samaritans, their hatred for one another, and by classism. Remember the Pharisees in their distorted version of religion, they taught their followers to avoid a leper. They said to Jesus, who sinned this Paralyzed man, not this one, but another, or his father that he, or sorry, it was a blind man, wasn't it? Who sinned, this man or his father, that this guy was born blind? There was this distinction by class that characterized their culture. And so for these men to arrive carrying a man who was on the other side of the social tracks, this was unlikely to say the least. That they literally arrived holding him by four corners of a mat makes clear that they had embraced his burden. Galatians 6 says, share each other's burdens, and in this way, in this way, obey the law of Christ. In this way, understand the Jesus way. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Remember when Jesus healed another guy who was deaf? He pulled him aside so that the crowd wouldn't see and he, he put his fingers in his ears and he did stuff with his tongue. But then it says this, he sighed. And then he prayed and the man was healed. And in that sigh, there is an embrace. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He was near to the brokenhearted. He was on high, yet scripture says, regarded the lowly. He embraced our burden, coming to earth walking in our world. And these four men, I think, find cameo appearances in all three synoptic gospels because they embraced his way. And there's something for us to learn. 
They modeled that for us. Verse 4, they couldn't bring the man to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof of the house where Jesus was. And I've heard this explained or tried to uh, be understood in a variety of ways, one of which is culture context. And it's important before we try to understand what a passage means to us today that we first attempt to understand what it means to them in the day in which it was written. And some would say, Consequently, well, this must have been cultural. Listen, it was as countercultural and socially deviant to tear apart somebody's roof in first century Palestine as it is in 21st century Denver. <laughs> There's no culture normalizing this. They made a scene. And the roofs were made of tiles on top of like thatch and mud. So after you lift the tile off, you got to dig through some stuff that's starting to fall on people's heads. And Jesus is preaching a sermon that he probably prepared for. And it's like having to try and keep going, like when there's the loud baby, and so I get louder, and the baby gets louder, and I'm like, I see you, little one. Game on, because I have a microphone. You've seen these moments where I have to outduel the baby, and I would pause and take a dramatic break in my speaking. But I don't when the baby's talking because I am going to win. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But the, um, the fact is Jesus had stuff falling in his hair. This is extremely untoward. And these four guys, they're completely responsible for this. It's not as though they're incognito. They're up there and the owner of the home had to be going, bro, you're doing to my roof. Stop! Are you going to fix that? Hey, I had to be kind of freaking out. I would be freaking out. These four guys are on the line for this, and what's crazy is they had everything to lose and nothing to gain by this. Best case scenario, the paralyzed man walks away forgiven, and they get a tort lawsuit. Like the owner of the home calls the strong arm, and finds out how much his case is worth. <laughs> that they went to this extraordinary length means undoubtedly they had cultivated a relationship. They must have. They must have cultivated a relationship because this wouldn't just happen. They couldn't not know how this was going to land. Jesus said famously, love your neighbor as yourself. We would do this for ourselves, perhaps. Dig through someone's roof, go to extraordinary lengths to get something that might make us well. But who does that for another, for a neighbor whom they see at the Christmas block party once a year? and wave when they go into their garage. Well, that's Jesus' point. Love your neighbor, learn to know your neighbor so that you can embrace your neighbor's burden in the same way that you would regard your own. They're kind of making his point by accident. So they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. And this is where the story turns from them to the man. He, the men don't get lowered down. No one sees them. It's a guy who suddenly is the most socially 
awkward person in the whole village. And these villages aren't cities of five million, right? Everybody knew one another. So they're like, Frank, what the heck are you doing, man? He's like, I just, it's them. I just, I'm laying here. I mean, what can I do? Right? He gets lowered down and it's not like they just, boom, dropped him. These are two-story structures. I mean, this was a slow lowering and they're like, he's like, well, I'm falling. Pull him up on the left, guys. I mean, this is, this takes a minute, a very awkward minute where he's getting lowered down and he's like, what's up, guys? Still getting lowered. Almost there. Like, what? I mean, to want to be healed aside, you got to have some relationship strengths, some basis for allowing somebody to put you in that position. That just does not happen. This is a very sensitive, a very vulnerable position. And jokes aside, a man who is physically disabled is used to being the brunt of jokes, is used to being put down and pushed aside, the last thing he wants is more negative attention. This works, this stunt, because of the high trust that had to have been built through sustained relationship. That's the only way any thinking person would consent to this. And just like the four men don't do this crazy thing without a basis of friendship, he doesn't go along with it without major trust. He could push through the discomfort and overcome the obstacles and objections only if there is a reservoir of relational equity to draw from. Have you ever had someone say, trust me, man, and, and your response in your heart is like, I'll trust you when I do, not because you tell me to, right? He trusts these guys because there has to have been some work on the back end in the relationship. And that's the bottom line. Relational equity strengthens an introduction to Jesus. This introduction to Jesus worked because of the relational equity that had to have been here. And that's why the church has tried and struggled with transactional evangelism for so many years. You know, huddle, build relationships with one another, and then on evangelism day, go out and do like some sort of transaction of evangelism. For a while, it was passing out tracts. Now those get made fun of. It was standing with a bullhorn, you know, at, at Union Station. Now that gets lampooned. It was going on treasure hunts. And again, if they're for Jesus and doing it or bringing a cup of cold water in his name, I'm for them. No judgment toward them. But what I found is going out and randomly hunting for treasure, finding a stranger and saying, hey, you look like you're in need. Can I pray for you? Maybe God does a miracle. Maybe they want to get prayed for. Maybe that's comfortable for them. Maybe that's comfortable for me. And maybe they come to Jesus. But I found that very often in my experience, all the different methods old and new of transactional evangelism are trying to circumvent, to skip the steps of building relational equity, which Jesus's way continues to hold at the center. The way that's not awkward for me and it's not as awkward for another person when the time comes to introduce them to Jesus. And that's what Alpha is all about. So as many of you know, Mari, my wife, is the, um, is the maven of Alpha. She leads it and has embraced this way of Jesus long before our church embraced Alpha and lives this idea. She's going to join me, and we're just going to talk practically here on Alpha Sunday about how that works. Can you uh, welcome Mari? She joins me. Hi. 
Hi. All right, so these four men, what I want to do is take this little nugget. If you guys buy it, if you're going with us and follow the thread, this sort of side application of this passage or interpretation of it and, and see what this has to say for us about how we proceed and how we build relationship equity that ultimately might culminate in making Alpha a blessing. These four men, they, they noticed their friend somewhere along the way. What does that look like for us in daily life? Just give us some coaching. Yeah. So I have, you know, I have always had a real heart um, for evangelism, I guess, um, to talk to people about Jesus. Um, but the, the beautiful thing about Alpha is that it, it has created a culture that really is um, human and really is truly just an invitation to a conversation. And um, so I think, you know, one of the things that when we talk about, you know, in, in a minute for those of you that are going to join us, um, hopefully many of you will. Well, hopefully I have to pull in more chairs for those and order more food. Um, but for those of you who are going to join us, you're going to get to see a sneak peek of what it looks like. Um, but before, you know, you're going to see it today, we're all hopefully in this room praying about people that, that are in our lives um, that we want to know Jesus. And I think, you know, we think about the Simplify series that we just went through. One of the things I love about that um, process of simpl simplification is that two things is that one, it just clears the clutter that, that, that keeps us so wound up. We're, we're almost like distracted by our own lives, right? And so simplification with Jesus helps us to clear away the things that we're doing that are just convoluting our lives so that we can connect more closely to the Lord. But I think the second fallout of that fruit, if we're experiencing that simplification, is that it, it, we begin to connect into alignment, as Rob's talked about in the past, of like getting a chiropractic adjustment. It aligns like your spiritual spine to begin thinking about the things that God cares about. And we all know as Christians in this room that None of us want to live, if we think about it, if we think about ourselves, we don't want to live in this bubble of life where we're just talking to Christians. Like we, deep inside, I think we all really want to make an impact. I, I think if I interviewed every person in the room, you'd say, yeah, like I want my life to count. I want someone else to know the Jesus that I know. But it starts with a process. And so... I think the first point, when you start to think about the process between bringing someone to the Alpha course, like how do you get to that point? That's what we really want to talk about, be practical today. Mm -hmm. And I think the first thing is begin to notice. Mm -hmm. As hopefully through this um, fasting and prayer time, you've had time to really simplify your life. Now, now is the opportunity to just begin to say, okay, God, now that I'm just like realigned at the beginning of the year, who are the people? in my life who are hungry. Because we could go and talk to everyone, we walk out the door and talk to a million people, but there's some that God is drawing that we're already in relationship with. And so the, the, the first step is just starting to become aware. And that can just come through a process of just kind of taking inventory, slowing down enough to just begin to notice who's in my life, mm. who's going through something, or who, who might seem a little spiritually hungry? Who asks those questions about God? Mm. You know, and just begin to notice 
Who is in my life? Who could I have this conversation with? For some of us, that beginning to notice might mean actually beginning to notice people for who they are, you know, that they are, that they are children of God all around us, not extras in the play, just beginning to see through Jesus' eyes. C.S. Lewis memorably wrote, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. It's immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. These are children of God and beginning to notice and then noticing whom Jesus might be drawing, stirring, preparing, um, where his grace is working in their lives, so valuable. These men that we're looking at, these unsung heroes, they noticed at some point. They, and then they made the big step to embrace his burden, to experience him with empathy and take on what he's carrying. How does that play out in the day, of, in, the day in the life of an average full-plate Denverite? Well, I think um, the second part of that, how that plays out is just that But then we begin to pray. Mm-hmm. It's pray intentionally. And I used to do this when I would fly um, from, or I lived in Oregon growing up, and I'd um, go to Tulsa for school, and then I would fly back and forth on planes to go back and forth to college. And I used to do this, and I, I've just begun, like, the Lord's been reminding me, like, you could still do that, Mari, in your day-to-day life. And that was, I would, before I would get on the plane, I would just, as I was driving to the airport, I'd start to pray, God, I'm going to sit by someone on the plane. I have no idea who it's going to be. They're not going to know me. But, Lord, would you put me by someone who, who I can talk to? Would you show me something in this conversation? Would you help me to strike up a conversation? And I'll, I'll tell you, there's been many flights where I'm like, I just want to check out. Just give me my book. Don't talk to me. Like, a lot of us are like that. But when I would pray that prayer, I am not kidding you. Every single time, Jesus would answer it. And I, there are, I have given away more Bibles on planes. I've gotten into the, some of the most crazy conversations that have blown my mind just because I prayed before I got on that flight. And said, so God, help me to see something. Give me, just in this conversation, something that would, would give me like a little crack into an open door where I could just have a little bit of a spiritual conversation. Because do you know that God is actually praying? But It says that the Holy Spirit, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us day and night. So Jesus is already interceding for every person that we walk by on a day-to-day basis. But when we begin to pray the prayer, again, it's this alignment where we all of a sudden begin to tap into what God is doing in that person's life, mm. and we just get to be a part of it. So I think the second part of that process, as you're praying, as you're starting to notice, is then just start to pray, God, would you begin to highlight someone in my life that, that you're doing something in, and then God, would you begin to show me like an, a little crack, like something that would be like, oh, that, this might be a, oh, something I could just start a conversation about. You know, it's just a yeah. little thing. In, our, in the relationships with people that we are getting to know, maybe it's our neighbor, maybe it's our coworker, someone who's far from God, and we're not relating to them in the context of God or on the, uh, as an evaluation of their faith, but just as a, a fellow child of God, if we just start praying for whatever maybe need is apparent in their life or what they do share, I've found that while that moves God's hand undoubtedly in their life and stimulates the Holy Spirit's activity of drawing them. It also changes my heart toward empathy and compassion and feeling that, um, that shared burden, carrying 
their burden. These men kind of took that step, right, our four nameless heroes, and then somewhere along the line cultivated a relationship. And that's hard to do from scratch in any context, all the more in the 21st century urban context where we're all super busy. Um, Thoughts on cultivating that friendship when we're all trying to cram 11 things in a 10-thing container and make a day stretch longer. Uh, How we, in a non-campy sort of make them a project sort of way, cultivate that friendship. Yeah. I think Alpha calls it just radical hospitality. Practice hospitality. Mm. You know, when you hear the word hospitality, I, that used to send me back to like old like church days where you have to wear women that wore dresses and like mm-hmm. made food all day long or whatever. And hospitality does look like food. That is part of the Alpha culture. You're going to get a little bit of a meal today. I try to make it a really good meal when people come, like they want to come back for the food, if anything else. Um, but so it can look like food, you know, just bring in somebody some cookies that's like going through a hard time. Um, we, we just recently found out about a neighbor, um, that we've been praying for that we see all the time walking. Um, she just shared with me a couple weeks ago when I was driving through my alley, I talked to her for a second and she said, Oh, d- did you know that I, ha- I have cancer? And I'm like, that's a really hard thing to hear when you're like leaving your alley and trying to greet someone and my heart just like broke for her and so I was like gosh I want to do a million things for her but all I thought well I was in Whole Foods the other day I saw some beautiful little flowers in this little mason jar thing I'm like you know sometimes we get really elaborate in our minds about like what we should do Mm -hmm. for people that we end up not doing anything because it's so we, we freak ourselves out just do something any kind of hospitality that, that is like a warm, you know, a warm meal can be a warm conversation. It can be a flower, a, a little something that you found for someone. It can be, you know, just doing something for someone that they weren't expecting. Um, my son Anderson um, raked the lawn or the uh, leaves of our neighbor one time who he didn't ask him to um, a couple years ago just to be kind, just to like show thoughtfulness. Mm. And so, but I think also just looking for needs that are around you, and it could be just a note that you leave on someone's desk at work. Hey, I know you've been, you mentioned the other day you're really going through a hard time. Just want you to know I'm thinking about you, I'm praying for you. I mean, it can be so simple. So just ways to like, that you begin to practice hospitality in that person's life that, that isn't fake, that isn't some like, I'm just going to try to like do all these nice things so it'll come to Alpha. You know, you actually just do something that's meaningful, that actually says, hey, I actually care about you. Mm. You know, um, I'm not, you're not just like a little transaction like you were talking about. You're a person who has a life, who has, has joys and has pain. And, and like meeting them in, in one of those things in a practical way. I love the idea that, or the point that you made that um, our ideals of radical hospitality sometimes can be the enemy of practical. Radical doesn't necessarily mean like grandiose or over the top. It means unexpected, countercultural, right? It can be... Um, it might be inviting someone into your home if you have the, the home, the time, the bandwidth for that. It might be simply recognizing that a coworker is lonely and isn't the one that gets invited out to lunch or, or is carrying a heavy burden that maybe they have or maybe they have not shared about and saying, hey, can I take you to lunch? And just asking them, just asking them questions about themselves. Everybody likes to talk about themselves and finds it engaging when somebody asks and cares. Uh, food often is, is a natural part of that, and that's why Alpha always features a meal. It sort of loosens it up. Do you have a life verse? 
Like one verse in scripture that of all of them is your favorite or the one that you say, this is, this is my theme verse. I do. It's 1 Thessalonians 2.8. And here's what it says. We loved you so much. This is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul of like St. Paul's cathedral namesake, right? The guy that built the New Testament church. He said, we loved you so much to the, the people in this city of Thessalonica that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well, because you had become that dear to us. It's allowing Jesus to make the people in your life so dear to you that it's a delight to you to share not just the gospel. The gospel comes in the context, not as a transaction, but in the context of that relationship. But it's choosing to share our lives. It's like, you know, WWJD is what the bracelet said that we all wore in 1998. It would be like W, if you had a bracelet that said WW. Uh, P-R-D. What would Pam Richter do? That's Pam. If you don't know what that looks like, follow Pam for a day, buy the bracelet, and just do what she does and live generously of your heart, right? Everyone in the Richter Mauer uh, row says, amen. That's what you're supposed to say, amen. Amen. (laughs) All right. And then relational equity that we build over time. There's no shortcut to a relationship, right? It takes five years to have a five-year friendship. That's not to say we have to have been in relationship five years to invite someone to Jesus, but there's no instamatic relationship. There's no optimized shortcut. Relational equity strengthens an introduction to Jesus, and ultimately that's what we're doing, right? But we don't have to close any deal. Alpha makes it so simple. Yeah. That's the cool thing about Alpha. A lot of us have had weird things that we've learned about evangelism, like go on the street and do the five laws and all the things, and you go through this process, and there's nothing bad about those things. They're truthful, but it's weird if you don't have a relationship with someone, right? And so that's the beauty of Alpha is that the, the whole process of it is very, like, invitational and open. People can actually come and share their ideas Um, about faith, about life, about God, their doubts, why they don't believe. And you just listen and go, it's really interesting. Mm. You tell me more about that. And so really, um, all you have to do is is make the invitation. Like Alpha really does a great job of presenting um, these amazing films that, that, that share the Christian perspective biblically. But then we break into groups and we get to just talk with people and hear their stories and um, all it is is really an invitation. And that looks simply like thinking of someone maybe that you've already been praying for on your, um, hopefully you're still setting your alarm. Your alarms are going off at 11.02. If they're not, like, please join our prayer campaign on that and set your alarm for 11.02. It's Matthew. 11.02 is um, uh, Matthew 11, chapter 11, verse 2, is your kingdom come, your will be done. So it's just praying for a few people in your life every day at 11.02. And so maybe it's those people you, you've been praying for, you're just like, hey, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ask them. And you know what? They might say, no, thanks for asking, but that sounds really cool, but, um, but I, I can't make it. Okay, great. You know, oh, so you asked somebody to do something, they said they couldn't. That happens to us all day long. Mm-hmm. We don't need to freak out about it. Just make the invitation. Um, and that simply can look like, hey, we're doing this thing. I'm going to this course um, right now in the spring. It starts in March. It's called Alpha. And really, it's just a place um, where you can have a, a meal 
um, watch an amazing film about the Christian perspective and then just have a conversation about it. Um, and it's really cool. No one's going to pressure you. You don't have to have the right answers. Mm. You actually don't even have to believe any of it. You can just come and talk. And statistics show that more people are looking and like wanting to have a conversation about God than not. Like high statistics show. But they don't, they want to find the right place to do it. And right. so you just create that space and then just say, hey, do you want to come? 